So we're joined today by Sean Evans, who is the host of Hot Ones on YouTube through First We Feast. And the first question I have for you is, being from Crystal Lake Central High School, do you say you're from Chicago or don't you? Well, it, you know, to people that know, like, so if you're from Illinois or that area, then I'll always say Crystal Lake. But if once you kind of break containment and go to New York or start traveling around, you're in Los Angeles or whatever, the the grounding thing is always Chicago. Like if I say Crystal Lake, then I have to talk for another five or six minutes about it. Chicago, bam, done. So so when I'm abroad, Chicago, if I'm local, Crystal Lake. Love it. Uh, for those doing audio only, Sean is wearing one of the new City Connect Southside jerseys. Sean is a Sox fan. What is your very first youngest vivid Sox memory? So it's actually like one of my core memories. Like one of the earliest was um, on or about my fourth birthday. My dad wanted to take me to the old Comiskey Park. So I remember the game was in 1990, pretty early in the season. And I remember the game because it was bat day. It was commemorative bat day back when they did that. And the bat stayed with me my whole life. Like we'd play backyard baseball with it. It's probably still in my dad's garage. But it was a significant game because – the pitcher for the Yankees that game was Andy Hawkins, who ended up throwing a no-hitter against the White Sox and losing like three or four to zero or something. And I think baseball ended up changing the rule about no-hitters after that. Like you had to throw nine innings. And then from there, it kind of was just, you know, collecting Frank Thomas baseball cards and the Robin Ventura poster on my wall and wearing the big hurt cleats in Little League and then the half off Tuesday night games all the way through school. Me and my friends used to go all the time and uh, just watching from there, playing baseball my whole life. So the socks are like the grounding thing, like the summers that kind of pace out my year and have been pretty much my whole life. What were you and your friends like at Sox games? Well, uh, you know, I think uh, we were, it was a, a rowdy bunch. I remember the, the teams back then would have been like the sort of a, uh, Jose Valentin years, like Frank Thomas years, that was sort of the half off Tuesday games, the, the Mark Burley years. Or, um, and we would be not as rowdy, early 20s, it got a little bit rowdy and started moving to the bleachers and people yelling a little bit more. But, uh, but overall, I'm a very chill sports fan. Like if me and my brother are watching a game, it's pretty just, it's chill. We might as well be like those guys that keep score while the game is going. Like I'm personally chill, some of my friends, savages. So July 1st, 1990, Andy Hawkins, yep. that, that's a famous game. Yeah, and that was, my, that was my baptism to the White Sox, and I guess maybe what, uh, what led me through this whole thing. But, yeah, such a significant game, and I'll, I'll remember it. It's not like I can remember the game because I was so young. It would have been, like, just after my fourth birthday. So, uh, But the bat stayed with us for forever, and it was good to see the old Comiskey Park, and I still remember – being in so in awe of the game then, like just seeing the arc of a fly ball or how hard these guys were throwing, it really was that first sort of sensory overload that that uh, made me fall in love with baseball. Do you remember if you got the bat when you walked in or walked out? I do remember. So they, they probably wouldn't do this anymore, but it was when we walked in. I remember this vividly. Like it's like if you go to the grocery store and they had all the, the produce on those big wooden, you know, like how they have just the fruit display and the vegetables display. It was exactly like that. I still remember walking into the stadium and then just seeing these massive banks, of just 
bats and bats and bats and they're just handing them out and then they were bats that you could really play with i don't think they do anything like that anymore but you know 1990 a different time and greg hibbard uh took a perfect game into the sixth so not to nerd out jason and sean but, uh, <laughs> the first 29 batters that day were all retired i mean that's that's a pretty good first game wouldn't you say jason <laughs> my gosh you you must have Sean. You must have thought that nobody ever got on base. Yeah, I mean, I was probably just sitting there eating nachos and ice cream and just kind of having a good time and soaking it all in. Probably wasn't privy to all the details, but when I look back on it now, I do think to myself that was a that was a pretty cool first experience, first baseball experience to have. Hey, Sean, I want to ask you about growing up in the Midwest, which we've all done. Uh, what? was instructive about that uh you've been in a lot of different places in your travels as as we have as well what is it about the midwestern uh, upbringing that still instructs you to this day well I, I was listening to the podcast that you guys did with bob odenkirk this week and he had a discussion in there that really that i really connected to where he talked about kind of you know not being on the coast or whatever there's never a part of you in the midwest growing up that you think oh, I deserve to be in this show or I deserve to be on stage or I deserve your time and investment. You know, like as Midwesterners, we're probably just so used to just keeping our head down and, 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 and enjoying our bosses yelling at us for not working hard enough or something like that. So there becomes a point where it kind of breaks containment for you and you can have this sort of whoa, do I belong here situation? But I do think that that's where the sort of work ethic comes from or the sort of uh, I'm going to make sure whether it's fueled by like fear of humiliation or just respect for the time of the audience is going to spend watching whatever you make or the time that your guest is going to spend sitting with you. I think that sort of Midwest uh um, sort of like, wow, this is so crazy that I'm here and not taking any of that for granted. And then really just putting that into the work because you almost don't deserve like you should be there. Um, that I think when he was talking about that on your podcast, I was like, that's exactly true. That's every way that the Midwest and the sensibilities of growing up in that area really shaped who I am as an entertainer. So I'm picturing young Sean Evans in his teenage years walking around the concourse of now guaranteed rate field. And I'm wondering what would Sean Evans then like about now Sean Evans? And what would he not like about Sean Evans right now? The famous talk show host. <laughs> the famous the chicken wing talk show host. Well, I, I, I think that you know, what, what ends up happening when you kind of get an opportunity is you just start swimming to keep from drowning. And you kind of don't know how far you've gone until you take certain times to look back. And that's always what it can feel like now. So I think old Sean would be in awe of this, the distance that, uh, that the new Sean has swam. And what would he not like about the new Sean? Um... Still a med Midwest boy at heart, so like you know, getting a getting a Tom Ford suit to go to Vegas or something. Old Sean would have puked at that, uh, but this is just a, a symptom of the new Sean. So uh, you've had so many people on the show. I, I'm sure Old Sean would have just been like, "Oh my gosh, you got all these people." Who is your white whale currently? Who are you seeking that you haven't gotten? 
So uh, fans have always been very vocal about the guests that they want to see on the show. So anytime I open my Twitter or like uh, go to an airport or whatever, people are just yelling who they want on the show. And for the longest, that was Gordon Ramsay. And the Gordon Ramsay heat was almost like an albatross growing around my neck, just getting heavier and heavier. It was like almost hard to do the show until we got Gordon Ramsay in the seat because people demanding it. It was just so high. Um, so once we crossed that off, I thought, okay, I'm good. Now we can just kind of do our show. Uh, but what ends up happening is when you capture one white whale, the fans just bring another one in and bring another one in and bring another one in. So those are the people I kind of want to cross off the list just because it can be so, so stifling the, the, the fan demand for these people. So like right now, the number one name on that list is Keanu Reeves. If you look in a comment on a, a YouTube video, put up an interview, be so proud of it. And people be like, yeah, this is great, but where's Keanu Reeves? So Keanu Reeves is that name that's so high right now. And I think, um, you know, 50 cent was kind of made in a, in a lab for hot ones. You know, that's, that's a name that uh, I've been going after for quite some time. And then uh, the classic names like Will Smith, uh, Dwayne The Rock Johnson. Uh, these are the names that are that are just peppered at me at all at all times. Uh, catcher Will Smith or pitcher Will Smith? No, I'm just kidding. Um, if you can peel back the curtain a little bit on uh, how you do get guests, and you know, I know you have a lot of people who help you with this. Like, how often do you have to make a personal call or send a direct message to get somebody on? Uh, ultimately, if you want somebody, is that going to be the next guest? What what is that process like for you? So for us, you know, we started off being like really resourceful and just trying to almost trick people into doing the show. Once it became more of a more of a popular name, then that's gotten a little bit easier. I would say now it's kind of a mix 50-50 of the sorts of incoming things that come to us and then we're able to execute on versus us constantly pitching people all the time. But we are aggressive in our pitches and strategic about that. So we'll have just spreadsheets and spreadsheets of like, so, so many names and in different parts, like, is this conversation warm? Is this conversation cool? When's the last time we talked to this person, that person? When do they have a new project coming out? All of those things, we just kind of keep that. It's almost like a bingo ball churner that is just going and going and going. And then once we start doing a season, because it can be a prolific show and we travel a lot and set up shop wherever our guest is. So once the season starts to get and once the season starts to go, we kind of just, all right, we plug in this name. Uh, this is kind of hot. Maybe they, they can have this peg on like July 14th or whatever. And then we just start putting up, putting together the the sequence of the season just in that way. It's kind of a Rubik's cube that comes together by itself once we hit the road and start shooting interviews and taking advantage of things. But I would say um, there's a couple times a season where, yeah, I'm calling in favors or DMing people or, you know, asking a friend to give me another friend's contact info so I can get in touch with this person or that person. So there is a fair amount of on the fly, just the sorts of variables that happen to you over the course of shooting a season that, you know, all of a sudden we have a fire drill, break glass. I'm on the phone. I'm calling people favors, this, that, the other thing. Um, but Overall, we're, we sort of have a, a big meeting at the beginning of a season where we can kind of break things down like, all right, maybe we're a little actor heavy. Let's see what's going on in the music world or in the comedy world to kind of balance that out and then put all those names together and then hopefully have interesting conversations with those people, turn the edit, publish the episode, and then on to the next one. Who are the people you watch that you like watching their interviews of other people? 
So growing up, uh, the thing that my dad would do, like if my mom was on a business trip or something, he would let me stay up late and watch Letterman with him. And I remember during the monologues and people would laugh, I kind of had my dad explain the joke to me. Um, so those are my earliest memories of just seeing the lights, camera action of it all and being fascinated by that. So David Letterman, just an enormous uh, influence and inspiration. I think, you know, Howard Stern is probably, um, you know, one of the, maybe the best to ever do it. Uh, I used to just record Howard Stern and like bring the tapes into school or like eventually like burn them onto the CDs and just listen to his interviews during study halls or at recess. Um, so those are two for me. Uh, Loveline was a big thing for me growing up. Adam Carolla, Dr. Drew doing that 10 PM radio show on Q101. I would just, whatever I was doing that night, you know, if it was on a Monday through Thursday or whatever, Sunday through Thursday, I was going home to make sure I could listen to Loveline to date. The nerdiest thing I've ever done in my life was like, send money to somebody across the country so they could send me a hard drive with like eight or nine years of love line and like just sort of an archive vault. And I would just listen to those like again and again and again. And that was kind of where uh, the dream started to where I just started to kind of think, you know, maybe I could do this in some way. Maybe to me, it was radio at first. So uh, because of those influences and, and those names early on, Jimmy Kimmel's another one that was a hero to me. Uh, you know, that's when the dream started to seem maybe not real to me, but like a possibility. Like maybe I can get in here somewhere. Why I decided to go to the University of Illinois, why I decided to major in broadcast journalism. And my end game was really, I thought I'd be, you know, like some of my, some of the other people in my class, uh, Adam Harris comes to mind or Dennis Gambino, these guys who ended up working at 670, the score and sort of a producer behind the scenes. Well, like that's kind of where I thought my end game would be or like where I would just have been happy. Um, my professor thought I should be a weatherman. Uh, and, you know, I got I started taking the classes that I could qualify to to do that if I needed to be. And then just be like in central Illinois at WCIU or something, just doing the weather or something. So that's kind of where I, I thought or saw it all going. But I, I don't know. I don't know what zigged when should have zagged that I ended up being a YouTube chicken wing talk show host, but somehow it ended up this way. Well, but uh, boy, uh, first of all, I got a couple things here because there's a lot in there. One, how did you find somebody across the country who had a hard drive of all those episodes? So there was, I mean, I'm just exposing myself. It's such a dork over here. But there was this fan forum uh, called the Loveline Companion. So there you could, that's what it's called, the Loveline Companion. And so then you could end up like kind of connecting with these other like Loveline super fans in sort of a resourceful way. And then somebody told me, well, like this guy's got them all archived. And if you do this or that or whatever. So that's how I ended up uh, connecting with the guy and then uh, sent the money and then wasn't sure if I was ever going to get a hard drive back. And then one day, magically in the mail, bam, hard drive on my computer, a decade's worth of love line. Wow. I, I, on the Letterman stuff, I had read that about you. And I feel like you're like one of 12 people in the country who may appreciate that one of my favorite things. I have a friend who I went to college with. We call each other every once in a while and do the Alan Calter crystal clear party ice sponsorship bit that Letterman <laughs> did for like decision 98 or something like that. Right. Do you remember that at all? He had like crystal clear party ice and liquid plumber foaming pipe snake. Yeah, he had, a, he had a couple of those things. And that's always what I liked about Letterman was the um, 
a reverence that he had towards those sorts of things. And I actually, Jason, see a little bit of that in you and Steve Stone, even in the reads, the sort of uh, a reverence to this whole thing in a, in a playful enough way, but in a way that's uh, that's very real and kind of, uh, you know, gives a, a, a human quality to what it's like to be a broadcaster, you know, where you have to lights, camera, action, put on this show, pretend that, you know, it's a, a performative version of yourself. But those times that you can actually show yourself or show your true feelings in a way that is funny, uh, that's my favorite thing. Uh, well, a compliment to you, Sean, is you you're very natural on the air. And and that's that's the it factor. And Jason can attest to this, that the best in the business are kind of who they are all the time. It's really hard to do, right? Because sometimes you want to act or project a little too much and you mm -hmm. end up becoming a different version of yourself. And, um, you know, you're, you're you. And, and I think that's what people like about you. I, I want to go back to the, uh, the Champaign-Urbana part because I have a son who's going to be a junior at Illinois. So tell us about that experience and, and what you gained from your college experience uh, downstate. Len's, Len's just trying to figure out what he should tell Leo not to do, I think. Exactly. What's right. happening here. Exactly right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't know if I'm the best resource, but I, I think for, for me, um, I knew what I wanted to do. I knew that TV, radio, entertainment, that was the thing that I wanted to get in there. The, the way into the door to me seemed like broadcast journalism. And so that route that I knew what I wanted my major to be. Um, but, you know, when you start off, what I think is, was, I think the life lesson of all of that is putting yourself in that position. It's never comfortable. When you're doing this, you're always taking yourself out of your comfort zone and you're going to be so bad at it at first. You know, when you first grab a mic or you first have to do a man on the street or you first are doing the, the standard out cue and the packages and down to the edit and all of that. And it wasn't really coming together to me early on, but I think it was um, a professor who I always think about in this way, John Paul, uh, where I started to really kind of get it uh, going into my senior year and, and kind of was putting together things that uh, were a little bit different, a little bit better, started really kind of nailing it uh, in a way. And then it was him who kind of took me aside and was like, you could really do this. Like, you know, I really see you, you're so glib. I don't even know if that was like a compliment necessarily, but he's like, you're so glib, you could be a weatherman. Um, and that's when I started to build my confidence and really start to feel like, wow, yeah, this is true. I can really do this. And I think it was the, the formal education at the University of Illinois, feeling confidence in myself uh, that was put, put in me. Really, John Paul was the, the professor who really gave me that. And then it kind of coalesced because my summer job at that time was I was doing architecture tours of Chicago's First Lady, Chicago Architecture Foundation, doing the architecture tours of the Chicago River, and then just churning out this audience where you'd have like 150 people in the boat doing that like four or five times a day all summer long. It was that formal education combined with that sort of boots on the ground, really running through a presentation all summer long for like five consecutive summers. Those two things together, I think, uh, were the foundation, like the launching pad, the thing that gave me um, the skills that I needed or work through those 10,000 hours that I needed to, to get to where I am now. Sean, you know how many people uh, have watched you and said to themselves, I think this guy was our tour guide. 
<laughs> no, I do. I see, that. I see that in the YouTube comments sometimes. And, and you know what? It, it's possible because I, I the volume that you'd put out in those summers, you know, you'd start at 9 a.m. and you'd work until the sun comes down, you know, just turn in tours every two hours. And then every tour is 90 minutes. So it's like boat takes off 90 minutes, returns 30 minutes to get people off the boat and get back on. And then you go out again. You're doing that four or five times a day, five, six days a week, all summer long. So I did hundreds and hundreds of tours, I would have recurring dreams where I'd work through a whole shift just in my dream. I'd, I'd do like three or four tours and then I'd wake up and feel short change. Like I didn't get paid for that time, you know? So it really, it was the thing that was, that was hammered into me. And I'm sure, I'm sure there are people that are like, wait a second, that bald guy, I've seen him before. Sean. So wait, 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 I wait. Be, I, I want to know what you, you, <laughs> you, you, you know, you have to do a day and film it, right? You got to do it again. I know. I know. Recognizes you and just kind of take yourself back, right? You got to do it. Yeah, and then to the the Chicago Architecture Foundation, what they do, like what makes the tours so good, is it's a lot of retired architects or like museum docents or whatever that that are doing it on a volunteer basis. So so this is the dream for me, you know, like ride out the the chicken wing talk show as long as I can, come back uh, to Chicago. I uh, get a little spot on the river there. And then uh, that's my, that's my Sunday thing is, is I, I, I take it back to the Chicago architecture foundation and go back to doing tours. That's, that's how this thing all comes full circle. So I, I want to know, I, I have a friend, Len and I actually have a mutual friend and I'm not going to say the name because I don't want to make this public unless he tells us it's okay. But a major league announcer was a jungle cruise guide at Disney world. And he's given me in the past the whole uh, book of scripted ad libs, for lack of a better term. Yeah. What, what was the training like for the architecture tour? So they take it super seriously. Like I, I, some of the other tour companies, uh, you know, it's just like college kids taking jobs, looking through some script that's been hammered out and, and doing the thing. But the Chicago Architecture Foundation, like I said, it's like retired architects or like architecture professors or people like that. So they were they get very granular on the architecture it's very history driven it's not like a fun um like oh little everything's got a little joke everything's this everything's that it was people who are taking that tour kind of want a college lecture sort of experience so so that's what i was really focused on was just giving the best possible tour so i didn't have too many things but i do remember like Coming up to your left, you'll see 333 Wacker. Notice the green glass and bend actually match the bend in the Chicago River designed by Cone, Pedersen, and Fox in 1989. Like all of those things, like once you start to pull the string, like it will just all brrr, come flying out. So were you in any way the James Dean of architecture tour guides and you like did ad libs that they didn't allow? I, you know, I, I what I even back then I, I didn't I didn't want to be funny tour guide because to me when I'd see when I saw that out on the out on the river I never thought of it as like you know it just seemed kind of kind of cheesy to me or something so I did always want to give uh, a good educational uh, complete and balanced tour to the people that was always that was always my thing I was just make sure I'm historically accurate that my facts are in place that the the pacing and the presentation is good the things that I'd like you know I draw special attention to and I like that moment of like I had something that I thought like everybody busting out their cameras and, and taking the look so like that's what I got out of it I was not you know uh 
I was not workshopping material. You know, I, 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 <laughs> how you mentioned, you mentioned before that you, you played baseball as a kid. How far did Sean Evans baseball career go and what positions did he play? So I, it ended, I went all the way through, uh, through varsity high school. So, you know, little league then played traveling baseball with the Crystal Lake Cyclones. Um, and then in high school, as you mentioned up top, Crystal Lake Central, uh, and we actually had some good teams. Like when I was a junior, we won the super sectional, went down to state. Um, I think there were like seven or eight guys from that roster who ended up with D1 scholarships. So it was it was a really good team. We had like a like a 33 and three season. I remember as a junior um, won the Fox Valley Conference again, like some really good players on that team. And then um, it went down to state. So all the way through, still remember my last game, I think, which was a regional championship against Barrington. Uh, and my last at bat was a sacrifice bunt. I remember that. So over uh, in traveling baseball, I played um, third base, second base. Um, and then when I went on to high school, uh, I, I found a, a corner outfield, left field or right field, because as I mentioned, seven eight d1 players on that team it was it was highly competitive everywhere else so i thought you know left field is maybe a spot that i can get in where i fit in and and did you know i was not uh like an amazing uh high school baseball player but did start in left field as a senior uh next to all of those guys who are really good would you have faced scott olson who uh yeah. got to the big leagues and pitched for south right he south. Yeah, south. Yeah. exactly exactly so when i was a junior scott olson was a senior at South and we, I never, we didn't play him that year, but um, I do remember big lefty in the, in the season that he was having. So yeah, Scott Olson was at the rival school, Crystal Lake South. And I wish I could remember the name because when we went to state, we did lose to a pitcher who was drafted by the Cubs like that year. Like that was the thing, like he'd gotten drafted, you know, like a month prior before this state game and he was drafted by the Cubs. And that was who we ended up playing. I do forget the name. I should have, uh, should have checked that, but yeah, Scott Olson or Crystal Lake South. I do remember that. Who, if you met them when you were a kid from the White Sox, would you have really, I mean, I imagine it's Frank Thomas, but everybody's got their favorites. So who, if you met them when you were a kid, would you have gone, oh, my gosh? Yeah, I mean, Frank Thomas is at the top of that list. I had the big hurt cleats in Little League. Uh, I remember there was this amazing um, good guys were a black poster with Frank Thomas and Robin Ventura and Albert Bell in suits, like walking away from like an explosion behind them. I still vividly remember that. So that team was... Uh, magical to me with those larger than life figures. The my first favorite White Sox player because my dad loved him was Lance Johnson. So one dog was the first the first base the first White Sox player that I was like really sort of drawn to as a child. And then that gave way to Frank Thomas just collecting all the Frank Thomas baseball cards and pennants and and everything in my room was Frank Thomas for a while. Um, so Frank Thomas would have been like as a kid, wow, amazing. And actually, even as an adult, would be like whoa, amazing. I've never met Frank Thomas. That would be an honor to do so. And then I think as things went from there, uh, my all-time favorite White Sox player, probably uh, Mark Burley. So so Frank Thomas and Mark Burley sort of uh, on my White Sox throne. can probably make that happen, the uh, the Frank Thomas meeting at some point. Where were you in 05 when the White Sox won the World Series? So I was actually in Chicago for that weekend. Remember when they won in Houston, like – 
going out. I think it was in Lincoln Park and and just banging pots and pans like everybody else and just out in the street partying, having a good time uh, with my friends, Tom and Kevin. I do remember the moment exactly where I was when uh, when they when they had that moment. What uh, what else was up in Sean Evans room as a kid? That's a good question. Um, uh, Back then, I mean, I was baseball obsessed when I was a kid. So it was like a lot of trophies, posters, those sorts of things. Uh, I was a big uh, rap fan. So, you you know, listening to, to I'm tr- DMX and Jay-Z and uh, Eminem. And uh, so those would have been up there. So it would have been probably a big stereo system back in the day, the, the big speakers on both sides with the 50 disc changer and then just wrap CDs all over the place. And then just surrounded by baseball trophies and ribbons and, and footballs. That was kind of the, the quintessential sort of nineties uh, upbringing that I had. Jason, we probably have to talk food at some point with Sean. So I'm going to break the seal. Um <laughs> What did you not like as a kid? Because everybody's taste buds change as they go, right? And uh, there had to be something you hated when you were 12 and now you love. I mean, seafood to me took a while for me to to warm up to. I did have like a, a toddler's palate when it came to that thing. And then my brother loved salmon and just the smell of salmon in the house was just enough to make my stomach turn. Uh, so I did swear off seafood and I was like, I'm just not a seafood guy. Like I, I, I don't like seafood. But then what ends up happening when you end up working for a food site like First We Feast is you expose yourself to so many different things and you become a little bit more adventurous in your eating too, especially even moving to New York from the Chicago suburbs, you know, that can shift your perspective quite a bit as well. So uh, once, you know, Maddie Matheson started making me lobster, then I was like, wait a second, maybe I like lobster now. So, so there are those sorts of things that I think um, early on, just having an aversion to fish and seafood, but then the more that I opened my eyes to it and all of the possibilities, uh, the more that I, I grew to love it. So that was that was one hurdle that was that was hard for me to jump over. But I'm happy to announce that I've cleared it. <laughs> I think as you get older, at least my experience, Jason, I'd love to have you chime in, is that everything is good if prepared well. Right. So there are certain things that I didn't like when I was younger and I probably still would not gravitate towards but if you eat like the best version of it yes it's great right am, am i crazy no that's that's what turns it all around i think because you you end up in a, a thinking something is a certain way but you know what when the right chef gets behind it the right restaurant changes your perspective on it they do something a little bit differently and then suddenly it can it can open your whole world so i i read that you have an, an affinity for anthony bourdain and I, uh, I read Kitchen Confidential when I was in college, and I was like immediately drawn to all the stories of restaurants. What was it about him, who we've lost now, that you were drawn to? Uh, it was just his perspective and his voice. I think what Anthony Bourdain uh, did better than anybody else in food media at the time was just uh, his ability to tell a story. You know, he himself was a great storyteller, but I think it was in identifying and putting people on a stage where they could tell their story. So I think that that is ultimately what I'm interested in, in entertainment or in uh, interviews is that perspective. And I think that his ability to 
to hit that mark was just special, like just a gift. And uh, I think that's what made Anthony Bourdain who he was, was his, his, his nose for a story and then his voice for a story. So you said during one of these interviews, it was with Paul Rudd, uh, Paul said to you, don't feel the pressure to eat all of them to you because you were eating along with Paul Rudd. And just as an aside, you said, I'm wired that way. What does that mean? I, you know, to me, when it comes to the, I mean, I, I, I do, when I'm locked into something, I'm a, I'm a good sort of goal oriented person. You know, I'm, I'm a Pac-Man. Like I can just eat the pebble in front of me. Just somebody put a pebble there and I'll eat it, you know? So I guess that works in more ways than one with this analogy, but it's just like, all right, I'm going through this experience. I'm just going to really commit to it and feel it, have it wash over me and then let the chips fall where they may on the interview. I have since then kind of gotten into the habit of uh, mirroring the guest because I thought maybe it was going to look a little bit weird if somebody's over there taking a bite and I'm over there cleaning the wing like I'm, I'm showing off in front of them or something like welcome to my welcome to my chicken wing thunderdome and I'm cleaning all the wings like staring down a uh, super famous A-list person across like I've, I've kind of gotten away from that and then more into a, a mirroring habit where uh, Jason however much of the wing you eat is how much of the wing I'll eat. But uh, yeah, at that time, I was probably like, oh, I'm just wired this way. I'm just doing it. But then I also think it's just important on a show like Hot Ones where you do ask these guests who have no obligation and no real reason to come on this freak show. You know, the, right. the fact that we meet them halfway with uh, an interview that tries to be thoughtful and career spanning. And also, we're not just swinging an interrogation over your light and making you eat these wings, you know, like, I'm doing it along with you so that by the end of it, it has this sort of like us guiding each other up the mountain feeling. Sean, you know what that's called? It's called empathy. And that's what to me makes a great interviewer is you're in it together and there's an understanding of the other person. What, what in your mind makes a good interviewer? So I think a good interviewer is somebody who can um, just, I think for me personally, the way that I look at it is we have this show where we interview people in this black box with this generic, generic looking bald dude. And we've been doing it now for six years over the course of 15 seasons, a couple hundred episodes. And when I think about what makes it work or why it's lasted this long and what I do as an interviewer, that's kind of made that happen is for me personally, like in my style, I want every interview to seem like an extension of the guest personality. That way, it's a different viewer experience every time you watch a new episode. So for me as an interviewer, what I want to do is I want it to be in hot ones, like the most comfortable, least comfortable interview. Yes, we have these hot sauces, but we have it's kind of a, an interview that champions the guests. This is like a show co-sign the guest. And I want them to feel that as a celebration of themselves, even, they, even as they go through this extremely vulnerable thing. So for me, an interviewer gives the guest enough, but not anymore and not overreach. So I cede a lot of space. I, I don't want to make it the Sean show where I feel like I've got to turn this phrase or do this or crack this joke or or force myself onto this onto whoever I'm talking to 
um, in any way. I give a nice long leash, seed that space. And then that way, like I said, every interview has a different viewer experience because it's always just the guest personality filling that room and not me trying to compete with that, with that energy at all. What does the eating experience and the potential discomfort add to the interview? And if you could do two different interviews with Shaquille O'Neal, and one is you're doing what you do, and the other one is you're just sitting in a room maybe with a cup of water, what do you get out of Shaq by, by having him eat this hot stuff versus not? So for us, the, the way this whole show came about is we were not like, oh, Sean's a hot sauce garbage disposal let's make a show about that like for us what we were originally just thinking about was celebrity interview shows are boring how do we make them not boring that was just the problem that we were trying to solve for and for us the disruptive element in all of that was hot sauce so the creator of the show chris schoenberger one of my best friends who i do the show with we were just thinking about it and he was like well what do you think of an interview show where we interview celebrities but have them eat like increasingly spicy chicken wings over the course of the interview is like a way to break them down. And I was like, you're a genius. That's smart. So we got in a room and started hammering out that pilot. And really the only solve that we're trying to do is, is how do we take a guest and knock them out of this PR driven flight pattern? Like what is our disruptive element in that? And it just so happened to be hot sauce. And there've been a lot of unintended consequences of doing that that have also served as the benefits of the show. Um, but that's what I think you get out of that is it's so jarring that you're almost stuck on this show, but then you like wanna compete, complete this challenge. And then you're also having questions being thrown at you from every direction that I think is, disorienting but it also will take the the sort of the formality of an interview and turn it on its end it'll take this sort of uh it's it's just a good way to get to know somebody quickly is to have this shared suffering over chicken wings so i think it does in a weird way even though it's so uncomfortable to go through especially you know once you start eating wings with the bomb i think it ends up kind of you forgetting that you're in this weird setting where you're meeting someone for the first time trying to create this chemistry while there's four cameras and just uh, pointed at us. And this in the most unnatural setting to meet somebody, a way to accelerate that, I guess, has been through hot sauce. And to answer your question on the other side, so I, that's what I think like the hot ones experience, like that disruptive element, that's how I think it changes the interview. And then if you're just with a glass of water, I think one of the things that ends up happening is Interviews at the end of the day are kind of a trust exercise. And what I'm hoping happens is that if you stay committed to the craft and you're prolific and you're writing interviews and writing interview questions all of the time and, and committed to watching yourself back and tweaking the things that you do well and tweaking the things that you don't do well, then maybe you can get into a place where you can just do a better, smarter interview and just improve time over time. And then if people recognize that, you know, this isn't some gotcha style person or, or this isn't somebody who's going to try to find the pull quote and bad faith or whatever. And they just kind of trust the experience and trust the platform. Then I think that is also a path to having a great interview show, because at the end of the day, I think the interview is really dependent on the generosity of whoever you're talking to. They don't owe you anything or owe you that anecdote. So I think just the experience of going through hot ones so often and then putting these things together um, I think now people just kind of like trust it a little bit more. I don't have to 
do so much convincing once they get on set. And then at the end of that, I hope on the other side of this, maybe you can just have enough of a, a trusted name where people will sit down with you with a glass of water and meet you halfway with that same level of generosity, even if you're not eating wings. Last one, if I may, on this topic, uh, and you don't have to uh, break bad on anybody specific, but no, do had, it, please. If you, <laughs> well, if you want to, you can. Have you had any episodes that will never air because 10 minutes in, the, the, the person just said, I, I, I can't do this? I mean, so I, no, that's never happened. Like, okay. you know, there's there's times where you're doing an interview and sometimes Seth Meyers said this in Hot Ones, but I've had the same feeling where you can be like, oh, like, you know, sometimes this goes a little bit better than it's going, you know, and especially in our show, when we have this bizarre element in it. Um, but you know what, though? I think that that's important, though. Like, if it is that experience, I think you put that out. You know, because it's that's real. That's real. That's real. You know, like if uh, you can't just hit a bullseye with every single thing, like I said, it's the most unnatural way to it's just such a bizarre thing. OK, this is the first time we've met. We got to build this chemistry and rapport. We have lights on us. We have cameras. And by the way, we're going to publish this to a YouTube channel with 10 million subscribers. Hi, nice to meet you and see you later. You know, like it's such a bizarre thing that happens where it isn't always going to hit the rails and be like a smooth ride every time. And then we're adding in this caveat where we're eating some of the spiciest chicken wings on planet earth. That's going to blow up sometimes. But I think I, I like what Jimmy Kimmel says is just about delivering the sevens, you know, like that's what I think, like, that's a good goal. Like just, just deliver mostly sevens. Sometimes you're going to have some twos, but you know what, you're going to offset that. Cause sometimes you have just some high note tens. So like, I think if the tens balance out the twos, but you're mostly giving people a seven, then I think that that's a pretty good place to live. So these wings are on the Scoville scale. Um, any plans for a Wilbur Scoville retrospective? <laughs> talk about the namesake pharmacist of the scale. So I, I think, uh, shout out Wilbur Scoville, been a, been a while since I heard a Wilbur Scoville drop. Of course, Jason Benetti. But you know what I what I do think is interesting is you know I, I like I said I didn't start off as a spice guy, but doing the show it's introduced me to so many different pepper growers, so many different hot sauce makers, and shown me the whole subculture of people who love hot sauce in a way that's fascinating. Like if you went to the Brooklyn Hot Sauce Expo, it looks like a Slayer concert parking lot. You know, like just <laughs> aggressive piercings and and crazy long beards and like. It's just the people watching is amazing. So I think that if there were some sort of episodic exploratory Netflix series on the, the and on spice as it encompasses everything from Wilbur Scoville and the history of it all the way through to the to the to the Slayer concert parking lot at the at the Brooklyn Hot Sauce Expo and then highlighting these crazy pepper growers and, and hot sauce makers, these, these tug at the heartstring hot sauce maker stories. Like I do think that that would be a project that I'm interested in. You know, sometimes I do feel pigeonholed as the spicy guy every meeting, like, okay, but how do we do this with like spicy wings or blah, 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 blah. You know, like I come out the gate with my biggest hit and all of a sudden, like I am just like, you know, like a uh, Ricky Martin playing the hits everywhere I go. And that's all people see. But, uh, but, that is a spice project that I'd be interested in and that I think is is worthy storytelling is that spice. And of course, if we did that, Wilbur Scoville could not be missed. I had no idea until I was looking things up about the Scoville scale that he was a pharmacist trying to find the best painkiller 
And that's why he started extracting capsaicin from peppers. That is the, that's the story. Like it is that story and stories like it that just line the pepper world. It is, it is crazy. Even, even the, the guys who make these super hot peppers are oftentimes like they're down in their basement doing Frankenstein experiments with crossbreeds. They're all competing with each other. Like architects trying to build the tallest building. All of these stories are wild and like the world needs to hear them. Uh, we both grew up as wrestling fans. Uh, what is your closet favorite, I shouldn't love this, 90s wrestling gimmick? Well, I mean, the 90s had a bunch of them. Like, I shouldn't love this wrestling gimmick. You know, I, the, but that's what made it compelling. Like, I remember even, like, the Generation DX situation. I remember when I was in junior high at Hannah Beardsley Middle School, they were sending out uh, letters to every like everybody's parents like stop having them do the generation dx thing like you know like i remember that vividly and that being something um that i shouldn't have been interested in but uh but like the whole pageantry of that time and of that era you know it's stone cold chugging beers and uh there's i can't it was that sort of wild, wild west moment in entertainment that'll just always be that thing. And it could probably never exist again. But I, I'll just, to answer your question, go with, with the, the DX situation because me and my friends still laugh about those letters that were sent home to parents back in 1998. What is it that they're so good at storytelling wise? What draws you to wrestling? It's the soap opera nature of it all. I think. I think it's it's the it's these complicated Greek tragedy sort of themes, but with guys who are oiled up in costumes. You know, that's what I think is interesting about it. But with like pyrotechnics and Metallica blasting on the speakers, with people chugging beer and taking their shirts off. Like I, I feel like. It's 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 Shakespearean theater for the everyman. It's it's Shakespearean theater for the nosebleeds, but executed uh, at a pretty high level. And then the commitment of these performers who are taking this on the road, doing this a, a show that has such such a physical demands, taking it on the road from tour bus, going from from place to place, and really just doing it for the love. You know, if you talk to or interview wrestlers. They're, they're so serious about that time and about their performance. You know, you do almost get the sense that you're talking to a Shakespearean actor about these times. And I think that that's, that's what's interesting to me is, is the high level theme, but with, with the low level presentation. And that's kind of how I am. I'm high low with everything. You know, like I like, uh, I like either eating at a linea or off of a truck, you know, like I'm high low with everything that I do. And, and maybe that's where I find, that's where I find, uh, that's where I connect with wrestling. I, I have a, just a couple more quick ones here for you, Sean. Number one, um, you do make connections with people who you've just met because of the experience we discussed. Uh, I, I would imagine you've made a lot of uh, good friends uh, who are pretty famous, which is probably makes your head spin. Um, how close have you gotten to a lot of your guests just based on the experience they have with you? Yeah, I mean, my, you know, I don't want to be, I don't want to name drop too much, but like, yeah, my. Feel free, feel free. 
my 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 phone if you just like look at the if you scrolled it you know you're like what is going on here you know like there are a lot of crazy names in the phone and some people who have have helped me out as i try to navigate this whole thing because you know we just started off in a cubicle with our little side project and then all of a sudden the hot ones just grows and grows and grows and grows in the context of this media company. It's like finding an agent or a lawyer and like navigating all of that stuff, you know, that, that required a little bit of help. And, you know, it's been nice to, uh, you know, go to Vegas and then hit up Gordon Ramsay, like come into Vegas, like which restaurant should I try? And then kind of getting there and you, there's a table waiting for you with like the Dama nice and a seafood tower ready to go and some wings, you know, like those sorts of things are amazing. Or if there's, a concert in town or a comedian or, you know, anyway, like, I think I really like to, when people do hot ones, I think they have this experience where it becomes kind of a hot ones clubhouse, you know, and that the long tail of those episodes are, our fans are so cult that, you know, the episode will come out, but it'll have this long tail, you know, and people will watch every single episode. So it kind of becomes this clubhouse. I remember one time seeing like Seth Rogen and Nick Kroll and Dak Shepard all talking on Twitter about their Hot Ones experience to each other. Or you'll see a guest go on a late night show and talk about going on Hot Ones, Jennifer Garner. Like it does become this clubhouse where everybody kind of stays connected. But I think um, a good one for you for, for this podcast especially is uh, Lucas Giolito once. Uh, last, a year or two ago, reached out to me. He's a big Hot Ones fan. So we sent him all of the sauces uh, out to his place because he wanted to go through the Hot Ones gauntlet. I think he put it up on his Instagram with like a couple of buddies. So it's been it's been cool to see kind of the way that like the University of Illinois is kind of reconnected over this or the Chicago White Sox is reconnected over this. The Bears, you know, even the Cubs, you know, everything that I kind of um, – in, in repping Chicago and going through this whole crazy experience and all the ways these things that you grew up loving kind of reconnect with you in a way is has been the most amazing thing. That's great. The last one for me uh, is, is about experience. And Jason will tell you, and he and I talk all the time about really trying to embrace new experiences. For somebody listening to this podcast, Sean, who is not an adventurous eater, and in particular is not someone who's into spicy or hot stuff, can you maybe try to sell them on the idea of why there's a benefit into doing something that is out of your comfort zone, particularly with the food stuff? Because I think that is an experience that, that everybody should probably go through. Yeah. And, you know, and I think that it, it works in life as well. You know, taking yourself out of that comfort zone, trying something new. The world is such a big place and there's so much to explore. And if you just stay so tight and in your bubble and you're scared of this and you want to just do this, you know, I, I, it's 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 it, to me not a good way to live. So I think, too, and then this is also an analogy to life because. Hot sauce is a, a thing that you can grow to love. It's a tolerance that you can build. You can maybe try something so spicy and then be scared of it and swear off spicy food forever, but that's the wrong attitude. What you got to do is, is start like, start with your classic sort of uh, Louisiana, the bottles that are on every diner table or, or your classic Franks. You work your way there. You start there. You start in just a baby step. You just take a little baby step. And then you know what? After a while, maybe you want to crank it up just a little bit more. Then you start going into, into something a little bit different. And as you start to crank these things, you'll find different, more complex flavor profiles. As you experiment with the other food, you'll find pairings that work in a different way. And I think the most valuable thing that I've learned about hot sauce, like 
wings I'm done with. I've sworn off wings. If I'm not on the clock, I'm not eating wings. You know, people call me like, where's the best wings in Seattle? Like, I don't know. I don't have this encyclopedic knowledge of wings. I have almost a Pavlovian response when I see them. You won't see me at a Super Bowl party eating them. I'm over wings. But hot sauce is something that I've grown to love even more. Visiting with these hot sauce makers, learning the stories, and then trying with their guidance, this pairing, that pairing, kicking it up a little bit here. And then the higher you go, the more often you eat it, the more comfortable you are. And then you know it, just slathering that up everything and wondering how you even lived life before without it. So I think that's an analogy for life. It works with hot sauce. And that would be my advice. Just, just take a little baby step. And before you know it, just like I was talking about earlier, you swim to keep from drowning. All of a sudden you see that you swam a very far away. So I think that works for hot sauce and in life. So, Sean, as you're saying this and, and talking about hot wings and how you've sworn them off other than being on the clock, Judd Apatow has said famously that he made all the movies so he could get the really good time for his stand-up set. And he didn't know it at the time. So, Sean has become famous. What is the thing that you can now do, either as a next act or as a whim, that you couldn't have done before you were famous? Well, I, every opportunity, I think, comes from that. You know, I, I think that I never had a five-year plan. I still don't. I'm not somebody that even that thinks that way because now I've learned to respect the ebbs and flows of life so much. You know, I went from working in a cubicle in Chicago to having three roommates in New York in a matter of 30 days. You know, like at a time that like if you would have told me April 1st that in May 1st I'd be in New York, I'd have absolutely no idea like what you're talking about or where that came from. If you told me when I came to New York that one day we'd put like 10 million subscribers up on this thing and have Oscar winners and Grammy Award winners and some of the most famous people on the planet sitting down with me to eat chicken wings, never would have believed that. So at this point, I always just feel like somebody who's grabbing doorknobs and whichever doorknobs open, boom, I run into that room. And the next thing I'm looking for is another doorknob to turn. So I feel like I'm in that mode where I'm doing 10 laps around any expectation that I ever had for myself. And now I'm just trying to, the more I do it, the more you grow, the more you take yourself out of your comfort zone, the more comfortable, the uncomfortable becomes. So I've just now gotten to a point of embracing that and then taking advantage of that opportunity by just devoting it to the craft of writing interviews and producing these shows. Like to me, that is the thing is just this uh, singular sort of wax on wax off focus on that thing. And then just see what in me it can unlock and, and see wherever my potential is. But uh, the way that it has kind of worked out so far is that it's a process that I love. I love walking a mile in someone else's shoes finally sitting down with that person and then having that experience. So that's where I'm at is just staying attached to that, seeing how far we can take this show and what its potential actually is. And along the way is just trying to be the best interviewer I can. What do you think of the Jersey you have on? I love it. You know, cause uh, Sheena, when I was talking to Sheena, uh, she was like, you know, like what's, what's your address? We'd love to send you something. It was before these got unveiled. So, you know, I was like, all right, here's my size, blah, 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 blah. And then like the next day was when they dropped that picture with Tim Anderson and Lucas and, and Moncada with the jerseys on. And I was like, those are awesome. Those are sick. I hope that's what's coming. <laughs> two, days later, two days later, open up the box. Sure enough, got the jersey. So a massive fan of these jerseys, the Sox 
have just awesome uniforms. I love the Sunday 1983 joints that they have. I love that jersey too. But I was I was really excited to get this one. They they really bullseyed this one. We'll let you go after this, but I, I want to know if you were being quizzed for uh, the largest sum of money you could imagine or the biggest point of pride ever. You're on a game show. You get to pick the topic, a specific topic. What is your topic? Oof, uh, Chicago architecture, maybe. Like if I were going in that trivia, maybe I would I'd lean back on all that source material that I have in my head and then hope for the best because at the end of the day, I am an expert in nothing and just have like a, a subtle intellectual curiosity about a lot of things. But I, I know a lot about nothing. Sean, uh, congratulations on all of your success. I can't, I still, after talking to you for an hour and watching your show, I can't believe you weren't just ad lib glib guy on the architecture tour. I don't know how you sublimated that. Maybe, you know, but maybe that's my final form. Like maybe this whole thing is headed towards that direction. So when I come back, you got to hop on Chicago's first lady, Jason, Len, I'm going to give you guys the tour and who knows, I'll maybe have some singers, little pokes, little this, little that. I'll have the whole place rocking. Love it. Love it. Sean Evans from Hot Ones, thank you so much for joining us here on Sox Degrees. Thank you so much. And I do just want to say, like, uh, it's such an honor to be on the show. Like I said, you guys are like the soundtrack, the thing that keeps me connected to the team. And But bigger than that, just as a broadcasting team, Jason, Steve, Len, DJ, it's outstanding. You know, I have MLB TV, so sometimes I catch the feeds on everybody else, not naming names, but it really is a cream to the top and such a gift to the fans of the White Sox and such a gift to baseball to have this kind of broadcasting team. Uh, so I just want to say honor to be here and, uh, and, and so cool to meet you guys. Sean, we'll see you uh, October 25th at City Field. Sox and Mets game six of the World Series. Can't wait to see right. it. Lock it in. <laughs> And, and we will invite you here on the record. Next time you are in Chicago, you have to come up to our booths and spend an inning with us, okay? That's guaranteed. That's guaranteed. That, that would be a bigger deal to my dad than probably anything I've ever done in my career. <laughs> Got to make dad proud. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Sean. Thanks. Thank you, guys.